0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I would ask that you would open them up with me to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> we we sort of hit some hard stuff last week, didn't we? And uh, we're going to continue to hit that hard stuff for the next few weeks. Um, Paul continues to talk about the same difficult subject in the verse we're in this morning in verse 29. and I wanted to begin by mentioning that I, I well, I don't know if I don't know if you have this this thing. This is probably just my thing, but I have a problem doing something. If I can't connect a purpose to it, do you do you have that issue? I can sit at a desk with a thing in front of me that I'm told needs to be done, but there's no purpose that I can connect to it and just stare at it for eight hours without any motivation. And... Uh, it helps me to know that there's a purpose in what I'm doing and what's going on. And, uh, you know, we saw verse 28 last week that says that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And and we can know in some way from that verse that what we're doing or experiencing has some purpose to it, but it would be nice if there was a little bit more there, wouldn't it? And that's what verse 29 is for us. Uh, he goes all the way and tells us what the purpose is. I, I can't do something if, if I can't find a, a purpose in it. It doesn't mean I should or shouldn't be able to do something. That's just how I operate. That's why math was not fun for me. Not that math is purposeless. I don't want to say that my mother is a math teacher, and so I don't want to get in trouble right now. But uh, it's been a while since I've had math. I had um, I had three years of or three semesters of calculus. That's, that's how calculus goes. So far, um, I have not used any calculus in pastoring. That might come up. There's a bunch of things I've done in pastoring that I didn't think I would ever have to do, so calculus might be back there somewhere. But I had I had... I had three teachers, three, three different calculus teachers. The first one was, we'll put him in the middle. He was pretty good. Uh, the second one, calculus two, was excellent. Probably one of the best math teachers, best teachers I've ever had. The third one, which happened to be the hardest class, was also the worst teacher. Um, so you have you have two types of you have two types of teachers, and this goes with with any with any subject. Uh, you have a concept that you learn in a class, and then they send you home with homework. And with math especially, you get to the back of a math book with the problems, and they always list like 75 math questions, don't they? There's tons of them. And you have some teachers that assign, you know, they say, do these nine questions, because we went over three concepts today, and I want you to practice each concept three times. That's good for me. I can take that home and say, I am doing this question about why this guy bought 85 watermelon for whatever reason. There's a, there's a purpose to it because I'm, I'm practicing a concept and I'm doing it three times. And I'm going to do these three concepts three times, so that's nine. That's what I learned from math right there was three, three times three is nine. But then you have, you have other math teachers who will say, well, there's 75 questions in the back and so I want you to do 75 questions and bring that home or bring that back next week. And that's your homework. And I sit there. Why am I doing 75 of them? What are these 75? Are they going over the concept? Some of them are just out of the, and I, I'll sit there and not do my homework. Um, I, I need to be able to connect purpose to, to what I am doing. That's why this passage is so good for me because life, life can be like that. Can't it? I mean, how many of you sat in horrible, horrible traffic this week on 4 or Vasco or 5, whichever direction you happen to be going, 20 minutes without moving and thought to yourself, what on earth is the purpose in all of this? You start to get sort uh, sort of out there in your thinking when you're sitting in traffic for long periods of time, don't you? Maybe you fall asleep, that's not good, but some of us start thinking, right? What's the, what's the purpose of all this? And I, I think it's good to to evaluate things like that, of course. It's always good to to be able to ask yourself, you know, what's the, what's the purpose? If, 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 I'm, if I'm doing something, is it for a purposeful reason? Is there something behind this, or am I just wasting my life on on something? There's been plenty of things in my life where I've decided... I am wasting my life on this. I don't need to do this thing anymore. And maybe I can fulfill this purpose in a different way. But it's those times for me, I assume for you too, when, when there's seemingly no purpose in something, something's especially difficult. And Christ in our, in our text this morning wants us to know for certain that the things we experience as believers are purposeful. That, it, that in fact, this is, this is how far Paul takes this passage, how far he goes in this text. That you have not experienced one single second in your life that was not purposeful believer toward God's holy ends in your life. But he takes it a step further. That's that's really verse 28. He takes it a step further in verse 29. He doesn't simply want us to know that our experiences have a purpose. But he's gracious enough to tell us what that purpose is. That you can actually connect The seemingly mundane or the the, the difficult tragedy or even the joy in your life to an expressed purpose because God has written that down for it for us and given it to us. That's what our that's what our text says. I want to I want to read this so we can see what he's saying. I'm going to read the whole context here from 18 where he really starts this train of thought down through 30 and see what. Paul is talking about here. Romans 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience likewise the spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, here's our verse, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Look at this text with me, will you? Last week, we looked at verse 28, and it informed us that all things believers experience in life are for our good. It just lays that out as a fact. That might be hard to grasp, might be hard to come to grips with that's what he lays out as a fact that everything in your life believer is for good and this working together for good is not god sitting up in heaven with a telescope watching the things take place in your life and working to see oh no there's a new variable i need to see how i can fit this in the puzzle to make these things work out for good he says that these were planned and purposed for good. That these things were meant to be this way. And that they were meant for our good and for his glory. And he he defines believers in, in two ways. The first way in the beginning there. Those who love God. He's not saying only those who do a good job of loving God have this joy of having all things work together for good he is explaining what a christian is defining what a christian is a christian is someone who loves god it's because the spirit has come in and changed your heart to be a god lover that's what he's talked about pretty much the beginning of romans and the second thing is that we are those who have been called according to his purpose. And this purpose we looked at last week is, is God's grand plan of redemption from before the beginning of time until our catechism question, really, where we are dwelling with him in the new heaven in the new earth, perfect, sinless, with Christ seated on the throne. And so this morning we're going to look at this next verse, verse 29, because we have some questions coming out of verse 28, don't we? What is this purpose really? What does it look like? What what are the grand ends to this? What does good really look like? And God is gracious enough through his servant Paul, to write this down for us. If you ever ask yourself, what is God's plan for my life? This is it right here. We did talk about it a little bit last week, the word good, verse 28. All things work together for good, but here's really where he tells us what it's all about. So, So far he's called us believers who love God, who are called according to his purpose, And now he tells us something else about ourselves. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. He's used this word, those. This is the third time now. Verse 28. Those who love God are the same people as those who are called according to his purpose, are the same people as those whom he foreknew. I'll just ask this. Here's the question. Here's the question you're probably waiting for. Have you ever heard an argument over this word foreknowledge before? Or maybe a better question. Have you ever been involved in this argument over foreknowledge before? Probably, right? You probably have. The question here really is what, is, what, is, what does Paul mean when he's talking about foreknowledge, foreknowledge? What, is it, what does it mean? We and we can go to the Greek and we can break it down, but we find out it really breaks down the same way the English word breaks down. There's two words smashed together, right? For and new. For is talking about prior to, before. New is knowledge. Knowing something. Knowing something or someone. You put them together and you get four new. That's how the Greek works. That's how the English works. So we really have to take this word and we have to say, well, it's used in two different ways. People talk about it in two different ways. Who's right? Because it seems pretty important to get this word right, right here, doesn't it? What does he mean that we are those who were foreknown by God? It's used in two ways in the New Testament. I believe it's used six times total and it's split right down the middle. Three ways, one way, and three ways the other way. When it's it's used in regard to a a human, meaning the foreknowledge of a human, it refers to them having information about something before it happened. Uh, Paul uses it in Acts 26, verse 5, where he's talking, I forget, Uh, if it's Felix or Festus who he's talking to, and he's talking about the Pharisees having known beforehand or having known already that Paul had lived as a Pharisee. And he's simply saying, he's using this word, and he's simply saying that if you talk to the Pharisees, they know already who I was before I came to Christ. They had a prior knowledge of me, a knowledge from before now. That's how it's used whenever it's used of, of a person having foreknowledge. Someone has information about something before a certain time. But when it's used of God, as it is here, it always refers to an intimate, loving relationship or a choosing I think we've talked about this before. The word, the word no, "know," K N O W, in the New Testament, in the Bible, is often used euphemistically. Right? Uh, Genesis four: Adam knew his wife Eve, and they bore Cain. I'm not going to give a, a lesson in how this works, but it's clear that Adam didn't just have a certain amount of information about his wife. It's referring euphemistically to a relationship between two people. That they they know each other in a loving way. That's how the word know is used. Paul used it this way, I believe, in 715. He said, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions the word is no I don't know my own actions and then he compares it to I do what I I don't do what I want but I do the very thing I hate I think what he's saying is I don't have an intimate loving relationship with my own actions I don't love my own actions instead I hate my own actions this isn't this isn't just a I I don't know what I'm doing meaning he doesn't have a the, the mental capacity to understand what he's doing, but he sees himself doing things that he does not love because what's in his heart is the love of God, not the love of self. So Paul's used the word know this way before. So anytime in the New Testament where this word foreknowledge is, is used, it's, refer, it's, it's used as having an intimate, loving relationship with somebody beforehand. I think one of the best examples is 1 Peter one twenty. Where Peter says that Jesus was foreknown by the Father prior to the incarnation, prior to Christmas. Uh, and he's not saying that. God knew him or that God knew about him beforehand, but that God had an intimate relationship with Jesus before he stepped onto this earth, that the Trinity had been loving one another in this holy communion from before time began. That's how the word is used when it's, whenever it's used of God's foreknowledge. I think another way you could say it, and a better translation of this word for our text here in Romans 8 so we get it clearly is to say for those whom he foreloved I think that's what the text is saying for those whom he foreloved or the ones he loved beforehand so when it's used of of, of people having foreknowledge it usually means information when it's used of God it always means relationship Now, why is this important? Because I don't think what Paul is saying here is that God had a set of information about you, believer, before you came into existence. That that because of the fact that God is all-knowing, he was able to see that you were a good Christian before you existed. It doesn't fit with the use of the word. It has to mean, based on the way this word is used of God, that before time, he had set his particular intimate love on a particular people. And you need to understand this in the context here, because what happens is, We start arguing about what he means by foreknowledge and and we forget the, the previous conversation, what we're in the middle of. He's talking about the fact that you suffer, right? In fact, back up to verse 18, what he's talking about is, I suffer, but I don't consider my sufferings something worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And he goes on to, to explain his sufferings and the depth of his sufferings and the way that suffering has corrupted all things around him and that the creation has been subjected to futility in, in hope that, that one day we would, we would be with God. And that's, that's the context here. And he says, you need to understand, believer, all things work together for good for you. Why? Well, because before time began, God set his loving affection on you. And so the particular things, the sufferings, the joys that you experience are purposeful, planned, and put there by the one who loved you before time began. This is a counseling session, not a theological debate. You see that? And we miss that. Paul's talking to people who suffer and say, understand that what you're experiencing right now has been given to you by the one who loved you before time began. And we need to be particular with it. He's not talking about God setting his love on the church. He's talking in particular terms. God set his love on you, believer. Each individual believer was foreloved by God. I think that's something to be joyful about. Paul's giving us this picture of God that, before he even said, let there be light, he loved you. Right? If, you're, if you're a believer this morning and you sit in this room because God set his affection on you in eternity past, that's Paul's point in this word foreknowledge But wait, there's more. Paul adds another word that we like to argue about right afterward. Just in case we make it through the first obstacle, we can face level two here. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This is another place we get off track. We want to get into a theological debate about how you got saved from this word predestined. Paul's not talking about how we got saved. In Paul's theology, he would say that you were predestined to be saved, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about justification. Look, he says, he also predestined that is you believer to be conformed to the image of his son that God set in motion because of his for loving you in time when he justified you set this in motion that the things you experience would make you more like Jesus. That you got saved and now everything in your life following that has been planned and purposed by God to make you more like Jesus. That's the point of the text right there. I'm not asking you to like it. I'm just telling you that's what the text says. I think we should like it. I think it's the greatest thing in the world right here. This means that We can sit next to a person, a believer, who is suffering and know for certain that what's happening in their life God is using in His plan and purpose to make them more like Himself. Right? It's like the math homework. That's a form of suffering, isn't it? But... I'm sitting here and experiencing perhaps the worst tragedy that a human being can experience. And you're asking yourself, what is the point in anything? What am I here for? Why do I have to feel this? Why should I continue living tomorrow? These the type of questions that go through our heads when we experience suffering. And Paul says here, God planned and purposed these things to make you more like his son. That is, you will be conformed to his image. You will start to look like him. Not your features will look like him, but that when when you face certain things, you will react to them the way Christ reacted to them. When you encounter certain people, you will react to them the way that Christ reacted to them. When there's a situation put in front of you. You will deal with it the way that Christ dealt with things. That when your enemy is in front of you, you will love him as Christ did. That's what these are for. It's not about how you got saved. It's what he's doing in your salvation. He's making us like Jesus. That's something to celebrate, isn't it? You were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now remember, the verse starts with the word for, and that word for means he's explaining something. He's explaining what he means by this word purpose in verse 28. How you fit into all of this? all things work together for good, those called according to his purpose that 's great, but how do I actually fit in this well he 's making you more like Jesus so let 's we're, we're getting we 're getting pretty deep here I understand so let's let 's come up for air for a second we 'll breathe and then we 'll dive back in. This is what paul 's saying that the sufferings that you experience are purposeful. We got that last week, right? that, That they've been planned from eternity past. But then he's gracious to tell us what he's doing. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. It's hard to keep a biblical, theological point of view in the midst of suffering that's why we need to know these things before it happens. What's inside of us is what's going to come out of us when we're squeezed, isn't it? You ever been in a situation where you said some things and you did some things and then a few days later you looked back and you said, what in the world came out of my mouth? I'm sure you have, right? What, what was that? Well, that's what was inside of you. That's what came out. That's what came out when you were under pressure. Paul is telling us this before we experience suffering so that we can be grounded on the bedrock of the hope of glory so that when we suffer, when we're squeezed, what will come out of us is Christ likeness. He's molding us and shaping us to be more like Jesus. He saved you so that you might look more like his son, that your life would be a reflection of him. But we haven't gotten to the real purpose of this yet. He's almost, it's almost like he's telling us that, that, that what's going on in us right now are, are, are the good side effects of the ultimate purpose. He told us, if we were just to walk backwards through this text, he told us what he's doing. He's shaping us to be like Christ. He told us what it is, that it's good. Back up a little further, he told us how he's going about making this happen to us. It's in the good things and the bad things and the sufferings and the joys of life. But but we haven't seen those key words yet in order that that means purpose that here's it this is the key this is what's going on we're looking for these words in order that i am doing this in order that and then you get the purpose here's what it is we haven't seen it yet where is it i think right here is where the heart check really happens for the believer Um, it's either a heart check or it's a gut punch sometimes i think it's more of a gut punch what if i were to tell you that salvation is not ultimately about you is that a gut punch i think i think it would be a a, a gut punch to a a large majority of just some mainstream evangelicalism out there in the United States, don't you think? Because what is it that, that, that's taught so often? Here you are, and then Jesus came, and He gave you a ticket so that you could be happy. And maybe you might get a car, too, and a house, and a picket, white picket fence, and some kids, and it's happy because of Jesus. And, and isn't that great for you? But that's, that's not what the text says. In fact, it's way bigger and better than that. He says, forget the car and the happiness and all that stuff. This is way more than that. You get to be made like Christ in the middle of this, but he's doing something even greater than that. Right? right? Obviously, you're included in it. Because you were the one that was saved. I you, you were included in salvation. It's, it's good. Obviously, it's, it's maximally good. There's no one in here that's going to be upset about salvation. I get to be with God forever in heaven. Perfect. No sin. Like him. Dwelling with him forever on the earth. As we learn. As the, as the ages pour in over us. Of the graciousness and the glory of Christ. That is an excellent thing. But that's not the ultimate thing yet. We haven't gotten there yet. This whole experience of the Christian life is predestined here for you that you would go from being in the image of Adam to being in the image of Christ and it's not until this purpose is realized that it's not about you that you'll be able to stand firmly on the bedrock of the hope of glory. I don't know if you remember that phrase the hope of glory in, in, in chapter 5. This is where this this whole thing started, was at the beginning of chapter 5. He says we've been justified by faith, which means we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of glory. The hope of the glory of God, that is, we have this assurance because of Christ, what he's done, the fact that we are in him through faith, by grace. We have this assurance that someday we're going to rise from the dead and see him face to face and be just like him. What's the purpose? You see these words conform to the image of his son in order that. You see those? Those are important. It means here's the purpose. In order that he, not you, sorry to break it to you. In order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's the picture. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life according to the law, which we could not do. The Bible says he stood in our place in life. He went to the cross. He died the sinner's death that we deserve and paid for our eternal damnation in hell and in those three days in the grave. And the Bible says he stood condemned in our place. So we have this picture of Jesus standing in our place in life, living the perfect life, and Jesus standing condemned. Dying the death we deserved. He went in the grave. And then the father raised him from the grave. Glorified as the perfect Messiah. The God who is also man. The king, the priest, the prophet who rules and reigns over all creation for all time. He raised Jesus from the dead. He seated him on the throne, the throne of David, where he rules and reigns. Deepak was talking about last week of him placing his enemies under his feet. And we see here that God planned and purposed. He set his love upon you. He saved you in time and is working out the salvation in you through the sufferings you experience through means that he's predetermined to mold you into the image of Christ, not ultimately for your sake, but for Christ's sake. He's doing this for Christ's sake. And here's the picture. Him seated on the throne here, he says that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is that he will be the preeminent one. And there is a group of people called the church whom he's saved, who he's made to be like him. And Jesus stands there as our perfect savior, our perfect king, our perfect priest, the mediator between God and man. We are made like him and he stands there as the preeminent one, the one whom all of this was possible. All of these people worship him and are under him because of what he has done. To the praise of his glorious grace. Philippians 2 says he's done all of this work and one day he will hand it over to his father that he might be all in all. That's the picture. When we, we, we've got to be careful, don't we? When we ask, well, what's the purpose in all of this? Because we're going to get a pretty grand story here. You mean to tell me that we're wrapped up in all of this? That the Father before time had planned to exalt and glorify His Son? And that the means by which He was going to accomplish that was through my salvation? That's good news, isn't it? It's not about me. It's about Christ. But I get wrapped up in it. I get to be a sheep in his pasture. I get to graze on his grass. I get to sit in his kingdom. I get to worship at his feet. Because the Father loves the Son and wanted to exalt him. Praise God for that. And so when we're raised up on the last day, when we're sin free, we're like our Lord and Savior. Him being the firstborn among many brothers. The word firstborn just means preeminent one. He's not talking about the fact that, that he's, the, he's, the, he's the one who came into existence first. It's talking about all of the the privileges that a firstborn child would have. They're the one who gets all the goods in ancient times. He's the one who stands as the one who came out of the grave first, led a host of captives after him, We all sit among him as his brothers. Him as the preeminent one. This is about Christ. And I think as soon as we can get our minds and and get our hearts wrapped around the fact that the sufferings of this life are for this grand purpose... Jesus would sit on the throne with his enemies at his feet and his people worshipping him forever? It doesn't necessarily make the sufferings easier. but We can understand what Paul means now, don't we? Sufferings at this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If we can, if we can get our minds in the spot that's off of us and on to Christ, we can begin to see what is going on in this life, that God the Father is glorifying his Son. I had asked myself this question this week. I have to ask you this question too. Do you have a big view or a little view of your sufferings? It's hard to talk about sufferings, isn't it? It is. But do you have the view of them that they are to make Christ more glorious and that he has determined to use you as the instrument of that? And the rewards of it are that you get to be like him. He even says, right, in chapter 5, that we rejoice in this suffering. Verse 3, knowing that suffering produces endurance. In verse 4, endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's not like we suffer in this life, but we have to wait until the next to experience some of the fruits of it. He says, now you actually get to be grounded in the hope of what God is doing. That you are being created as, as this vessel for the gospel connect this to ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 what is god doing in us and through us in this christian life he's making us like christ and he's forming us into this workmanship this poem that we would be about good works spreading the glories of this gospel to the people around us And, and what gospel are you telling them That if you follow Christ, you'll be a happier person? Is that the gospel? Or is it that God is working to glorify His Son and He is calling all men to Himself? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you have a big view or a little view of your sufferings? Is Christ so worth it to you that you can... Like Paul, say that you don't even consider the sufferings of this life worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us? Not because things are going to be so much better for you someday, but because Christ will be magnified and honored. Is our view of life such that we just look forward to the time where we don't have to experience sin anymore or is our view of life such that we look forward to the time where Christ will be made all in all? You see the difference? Both are true. Which are you aiming toward? Is it for the glory of God or is it for the glory of yourself perhaps? Because Christ will be magnified and honored, worshipped as he truly deserves. Now, I think, maybe it doesn't work the same way for you, but I think that when I'm able to see the purpose in this, what God is doing in lifting high Jesus, making me like him, that the sufferings of this life, they don't get easier. But I can view them through the lens of the Bible. There's a purpose in this that I can push through what I'm experiencing, though it might be the worst thing I've ever felt, because I know that God is going to be glorified in this. And that through that, I'm going to be made more like Jesus so that when I see him and he is lifted up as the preeminent one above many brothers, he will say to me, well done. Thank you, good and faithful servant. You look forward to that day? Is that a dreadful day, or is that a good day? Is it a good day because Christ will be glorified? Amen, I hope so. Why don't why don't we have the ushers come forward where we take the Lord's Supper and what we're doing here in the Lord's Supper is not just a mundane activity but we are proclaiming his name until he comes. That is, every week that we do this, we are looking for that day where Jesus will be known throughout all creation as the preeminent one. And what we're doing here with these elements, and representing the body and blood of Jesus, is we're saying... We're not wrapped up in all of this because of something that we've done. We're not wrapped up in all of this because God saw that we were going to be good people. We're not wrapped up in this because we've got the money to buy our way into this. We're in this because Christ has determined to use us for his purposes. God the Father has determined to use us for his purposes in glorifying his Son. And we proclaim his death until he comes again. So I'm going to pray, the the ushers here, they're going to pass out the elements, take them at your leisure, and we will uh, sing one more song before we close. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that you are working in this world. Sometimes our lives, this world, is so full of sufferings that we lose focus on what's going on. Or perhaps we've never really thought about it. Perhaps this is our first time actually hearing from the Bible that suffering is purposeful. Perhaps we've bought the lie, we've been fed the narrative... That suffering happens because we did something wrong and we need to have it beaten out of us or we weren't the good Christian we should be and so we're not experiencing the good things we should. Father, your word tells us that our sin has been placed on Christ, that he has been condemned in our place and that we stand as justified people before you. Father, we thank you that we can stand here today and experience sufferings, knowing the purpose of them. Father, we pray that you'd help us. It's so difficult with us still experiencing the effects of indwelling sin to get our minds off of ourselves and onto Christ, Father. Would you give us a heavenly perspective on what's going on in the world? Would you allow us to walk through the difficulties of life because Christ is worth it? Father, we pray that you would do your work in glorifying yourself in us, making us more like Jesus, Father. We look forward to that day where he will come again and we will be like him. We can pray together that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.